Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Oh Lord, we've worshipped you already this morning. You deserve all of our worship. Lord, we pray that that worship will continue, that everything that we say, do, in this service will continue to honor you. And again, Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to nudge and feel every heart in this place. And Lord, we pray for changed lives by the time this service comes to an end. Lord, we're about to read your word. And your word, just the reading of it, is better than anything that I will say. So Lord, peak our attention to your word as we read it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. Last Sunday morning, while we were going on a mission trip, Trevor took us through uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And he talked about the high church of the graceful truth. A great message. If you haven't heard it, please go online uh, to our website, and you can hear both his Sunday morning and Sunday evening uh, services, his messages. Uh, They were incredible. And I encourage you to read them, uh, to hear them. The writer of Hebrews is concerned about his congregation. He is watching them and he is sensing that they are in trouble, in jeopardy of drifting away from simple Christian faith. And as they are drifting away from simple Christian faith, he is concerned that they are also drifting away from God's best. There are a number of reasons for their drift. But whatever the reason is, he wants to urge them to stop drifting and start holding on to their faith with white-knuckle grips. And so the series title is White Knuckle Faith. He has just finished in the first ten verses talking about a mysterious and weird character from the Old Testament book of Genesis named Melchizedek. But he realizes as he's talking about Melchizedek that he is speaking of something that his hearers are not really ready to hear. And so he stops in the middle of his discussion about this mysterious Melchizedek, and he reprimands these people for their lack of readiness. title of the message is, Can You Handle Something Solid? Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, and we will read right into the first verses of chapter 6. About Melchizedek, he says, We have much to say about this. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, 
though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Here lately, if you are a Braves fan, you are familiar with the name Ben Sheets. None of us uh, outside of Milwaukee, where he used to play and was an all-star for four years, none of us have really ever heard that much about Ben Sheets. He was a pitcher, born in July 1978, born on July the 18th. He shares the birthday with Christopher Gould. He pitched for the Milwaukee Brewers, and when he came for a free agency, he went from there to uh, the Oakland Athletics and had a series of surgeries, ended up trying to come back in 2010 and uh, messed up a ligament in his elbow. He had to have Tommy John surgery, and he never quite made the recuperation, and he retired back to his home in Monroe, Louisiana where he has a little boy, nine years old, named Seaver, named after the uh, legendary pitcher of the New York Mets, Tom Seaver. And Seaver has one of these pitchback machines in his backyard, and Ben Sheets was training Seaver Sheets to throw into the pitchback machine and throw it back when Seaver said, Dad, why don't you try to do this again? Why don't you try to make, again, a comeback? And so Ben Sheets installs spotlights in his backyard, and late into the night, to the bother of many of his neighbors, who often would open up their windows and say, Son, you need to go to bed, not realizing that it wasn't the son, Seaver, who was out there pitching, it was Dad Ben. At 34 years old, and he's throwing till late in the night, up into the morning. And he keeps doing this day after day after day until he contacts his agent. And he says, I want you to come over here and watch me pitch to this pitchback machine. And he did that. And, and the agent said, well, I don't really think anybody, any of the teams will really be interested in you, Ben, after these three different surgeries and you're, you, you've failed comeback in 2010. But I'll put out feelers. The New York Mets were interested, the Texas Rangers were interested, and the Atlanta Braves were interested. The Braves sent a scout down to Monroe, Louisiana with a radar gun and clocked, sat behind the pitchback machine and clocked Ben Sheets at 91 to 92 miles per hour. That's pretty good. Not Steven Strasburg or Craig Kimbrell good, but still pretty good. 
And so they signed him to a minor league contract. And for the first time in two years, he, he started a game for the Mississippi Braves, the Class A, the down at the bottom, along with the Lynchburg, what's their name? Lynchburg something. Hellcats? Something cats. Hillcats. Yeah. They didn't want to say Hellcats up there in Lynchburg, did they? No. So Lynchburg and Mississippi are the class A. They started him down there, and he did pretty good, and so they brought him up, and his first game uh, was against uh, the, the Mets, and he went six innings, scoreless innings, and it was great. We wondered if it was just uh, kind of a fluke. And then he pitched yesterday in the first game of a doubleheader and went six more scoreless innings and was virtually untouchable. Now, he may flop tomorrow, but so far, at a time when the Braves really, really needed good pitching, he has come through on two different occasions in a great way. How did he make that comeback? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. The answer is he practiced. And he practiced, and he practiced, and he practiced. And at the urging of his nine-year-old son, Seaver, he kept throwing in that pitchback machine until late in the, in the night, every single night, until he built up the strength in his arms and the upper part of his body, and he worked on his pitching mechanics, and he was able to make a comeback. It came through disciplined training and practice. Now, on the other hand, take our favorite, John Smoltz. I don't have to tell you about John Smoltz, legendary starter for the Braves during the 90s, uh, contributed to the uh, streak of pennant wins for the Braves during the 90s, uh, was also a closer, the only pitcher to have 300 wins plus 150 plus saves, the only pitcher in baseball history to do that. But since John Smoltz retired, he hasn't thrown the ball much. And so when the Gwinnett Braves opened up their season up in Gwinnett County this year at Cool Ray Field, they brought John Smoltz in to throw the ceremonial first pitch. And John Smoltz bounced it, bounced the ball to the plate. It was an embarrassment. Now, he did a whole lot better by the time he threw out the pitch on the day that the Braves retired his jersey back last month, but he was out of practice. What is true for pitchers in baseball is true for those of us who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because we're saved does not mean that we are in good shape spiritually. Fact of the matter is, uh, we can be saved and yet we can find ourselves in a place of being very immature. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, beginning with verse 11 and going into chapter 6, he reprimands his congregation for being immature. Now this is a very ironic thing, ladies and gentlemen, because he reprimands them for only being able to handle milk, liquid food, as opposed to solid food. But right on the other hand, this letter to the Hebrews is the most complex, both theologically and linguistically in language, the most complex book in the entire Bible. 
So on the one hand, he reprimands them for their immaturity, while at the same time really complimenting them by writing a book that is so complex. And obviously he expected them to be able to digest the complexity of this book. It's an irony. But he reprimands them. You remember Jeff Foxworthy's, you might be a redneck if. Let me throw out a few things here. You might be an immature Christian if. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. I just threw it off. And you, you will think of some that are a whole lot better than mine. You might be an immature Christian if you haven't opened your Bible in the last week. You might be an immature Christian if you haven't prayed in the past week. You might be an immature Christian if the only scriptures you know are John 3.16 and the Lord's Prayer. Matthew's version, not Luke's. They're different. You might be an immature Christian if you don't feel as if church is important. You might be an immature Christian if you can see everybody else's sin, but you can't see my own sin. You might be an immature Christian if you are a divisive person. You might be an immature Christian if you do not consider, if you do not consider yourself to be immature. You might be an immature Christian if you get offended when you're not given enough attention or credit for something that you have done. You might be an immature Christian if you've changed churches more than three times in the past five years. That's just a random figure there. You might be an immature Christian if you can't fellowship with people who do not believe everything exactly as you do. Here's my favorite. You might be an immature Christian if your faith is most often summed up by trite sayings, like the ones on that old church marquee. You see, here's the deal. God wants us to grow, and our spiritual growth is so important that the lack of it can cause real problems in our Christian life and in our decision-making. So from this uh, passage, I, I want to share with you uh, four very important things that, uh, that I think we need to know about immaturity versus maturity. First of all, there is a place for baby Christians. There is a place. Now, he is reprimanding these people for being baby Christians when they ought to be grown-up Christians. But there is a place for baby Christians. In fact, there is a point where we actually rejoice over baby Christians. Just a couple of weeks ago, Devin came and made a profession of faith. He's a baby Christian. Did we reprimand Dylan? For being a baby Christian? No, we rejoiced. Everybody was doing this right here, which is the sign language way of clapping and applauding Dylan. A few weeks earlier, Nathan came and he made a profession of faith. Did we criticize Nathan for being a baby Christian? No, we all did this. Praising God. There's a place for baby Christians. And we would not expect a newborn Christian boy, girl, man, or woman, regardless of age, to be mature in a week or two or a month or two or even a year or two. 
But there comes a time when God expects us to move beyond infamil to meet. There's a place where God wants us to move beyond spiritual milk to spiritual solid food. And so the second thing I want you to say, I want to, to, to get is this spiritual immaturity does increase a Christian's vulnerability to drifting. You see, this was the problem that he was concerned about because they had drifted back into milk as a diet and away from solid food. They made themselves susceptible to drifting away from God's best. Now, let me just say this to you in plain terms, ladies and gentlemen. If you and I have stopped reading and studying our Bibles, if you and I have backed off on serious praying and we've gotten back into the just the short memorized prayers, and if you and I have stopped spending time meditating upon what Christ wants in our lives, then we are naturally and logically going to drift away from God's best. You and I cannot grow apart from prayer and and getting into God's Word and being with God's people and worshiping together and studying together and having a private time alone with God. We cannot grow. It's not possible. And so the writer of Hebrews is very much aware of what's going on in these people's lives. They've drifted away from their trained spiritual growth. They've said, ah, I don't want to pray. Ah, there's no point in reading the Bible. I'll pick it up Sunday morning if I can find it. I'll just leave it on the coffee table there. It'll look good when the preacher comes by or when the deacons come by. And that way I'll pick it up and go carry it with me to church. But I don't need to open it during the week. And therefore, they were made susceptible to drifting. If you are here today and you feel yourself drifting away from the Lord, you're not as close to the Lord as you used to be. You're not as close to uh, uh, Christ as you used to be or as you want to be. Think about why. Is it because you've backed off of those needed practices that help you grow stronger in Christ? Now, the third thing I want you to get is this. Christian growth must be continuous. It must be continuous. Can I give you a, can I just make a confession to you? I hate to exercise. I hate exercising. But I exercise. But I hate to exercise. I would love it if it was possible for a human being to stay in shape, in good shape, and never exercise. Because that's what I would do. I would love it if sleeping late would get you in tip-top shape without exercise. I would do that. But what I have found is this, that if you want the probability of lifelong health, that's not a guarantee, but if you want the probability of lifelong health, here's what you have to do. You have to eat right and you have to continuously exercise. I mean, regularly exercise. It has to be continuous. You can't, and the same thing applies to the Christian walk. You and I cannot 
read the Bible this week and expect that reading of the Bible this week to carry us for five years without ever opening it again. We can't expect to pray today and expect those prayers to carry us without any other prayers for the next three to four years. I mean, the impact of the prayers will be there, but the growth will stop. The growth growth somewhere along the way will fizzle out. Verse 14 says this, he says, But solid food is for the mature who, now get this, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now what this means is that anyone, regardless of how far he or she has come in Christian growth, can, by ceasing to grow, become immature Again, now, let let me just stop right here and say something that's not going to be on the slide, but I probably should have put it on the slide, but I want you to get it. It's very, very important. Are you ready for this? It is wrong for me to judge or, or gauge my spiritual maturity by comparing where I am with where anybody else is. Now, I can do that, and you can do that, but that's not the way to do it. The right way, I believe, is twofold. One, to compare myself with where Christ is. And of course, I always come up short there. But the other is to compare myself with where God would want me to be at this point in my life. And so it is possible that if there are three three people in a group and I'm one of the three, it's possible that I'm way ahead of, say, a Dylan... But Dylan hasn't been a Christian for 44 years. And so I should be ahead of Dylan. And there may be someone else who's ahead of me. But the question is, where should I be at this point in my life? And where am I in contrast to where I should be at this point in my life? You see, it's possible that, that uh, I could have... Uh, been successful in in being a spiritually mature person for many, many years and gotten to a certain place that might be ahead of other people, not quite ahead of of other folks, but yet still be immature in comparison to where I should be in my life. And so Christian growth must be continuous. There's no place to stop. The exercise must continue. Number four, finally, to go from being babies to being mature Christians requires practice. Continuous practice. Practice makes perfect. How do you get good in checkers? By practicing checkers. How do you get good in chess? By practicing chess and watching the masters of chess. How do you get good at playing uh, baseball by practicing and having coaches guide you and listen to them? How do you get good at business by, by reading what others do in business, but then by practicing good business principles? How do you get good at being a Christian? You do it, first of all, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by emulating Christ, who is our guide, and by practicing the Christian faith. It takes practice. This was a problem in the first century. It's a problem today. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 
He was concerned about this spiritual immaturity. And he says this to them in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly for where there is jealousy and quarreling. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being mere human beings? You're still drinking milk and not solid food. There's a lot of great things happening in the Christian church today. There's a lot of great things happening in America. But one of the bad things happening in Christian churches, I think especially in America, is that we have developed, rather than developing spiritual followers of Christ, we have developed spiritual consumers. We have developed a consumerism mentality in uh, Christian churches that basically determines the success of a church by how well they are meeting my wants. Do they have the program that meets my wants? Do they have the worship that meets my wants? Does the style of the sermon meet my wants? Notice I didn't say needs. And I didn't say needs because today... It's less of mentality of meeting my needs, although that's what we call it, as it is meeting my wants. Here's what I want. Will this church give me what I want? People come to churches today and one of the first things they want to know is, tell me what you can do for me. And unfortunately, that is a huge sign of spiritual immaturity. Maturity says... What can I do for you? Maturity says, where does God want me to be for you? Immaturity says, what can you do for me? What kind of programs do you have for me? How can you minister to me? How can you feed me? Maturity says, what can I do to better feed you? So my question to us is this. Can you handle solid food? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is that moment in a service where you do your greatest work. It's the, serv- it's the part of the service where more often than not someone comes and receives you as their Savior and Lord. They begin a relationship with you based on a commitment to you and your uh, death for us on the cross and resurrection. So Lord, I pray that somebody here who's lost will come and invite Christ into their lives right here today. Lord, I pray that someone who is not a member of this church will say, hey, it's time for me to join this church officially, become an official member of this church, and I pray they would. Lord, I pray for people, and perhaps this will be the largest group of people who, who might 
come to this altar is people who realize I'm not where I ought to be. I'm in danger of drifting or maybe I, I have. I've woken up this morning and I have drifted and I need to recommit my life to you, Lord, in seriousness. And they want to come to this altar and make that commitment visible. So many people in our church have problems. Lord, there are people who will want to bring their problems to this altar. And there are people here who have praises. They will bring their praises to this altar. Oh, Lord. I pray that in this altar we will see Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.